Welcome to Media Path, everybody. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Planker. You know, here in the Media Path podcast, we're happy to deliver some early holiday treats to you in the way of entertainment options, fabulous guests, just in case everything else you've ordered for Christmas is stuck in a tanker in Long Beach <laughs> Harbor. Today, we have the man who produced a couple of my television shows on Channel 4, Barry Kibrick. We broke a little ground in spite of ourselves, and Barry and I are going to turn over a few rocks and unearth some great memories. He went on to produce Rick D's Late Night Talk Show, as well as his own really interesting podcast these days, with a big, successful, Emmy-winning television show in between. We're going to dive in with Barry in just a few minutes. But first, Wheezy, what do you have for us? Oh, a lot. This week I watched Tick, Tick, Boom. I started that. Okay. Keep going. It's on Netflix. This is Lin-Manuel Miranda's directorial debut from a screenplay by Steven Levinson, and it is based on the stage musical by Jonathan Larson. It tells the story of gifted and aspiring composer Jonathan Larson toiling and grasping for achievement in his chosen field before it's too late. He obsesses about running out of time, consistently comparing himself to where others were at his age or where others are who chose a more conventional path. We are also prone to assessing ourselves within the framework we collectively create. Marion Ross describes the same compulsion in her autobiography, but Marion's trajectory was to log those hours of stage and screen work in preparation for breakthrough stardom as Mrs. C on Happy Days at the age of 54. We each have our own path, and we should strive to measure our progress against only ourselves. Are we doing better this year? Have we learned? Have we grown? Are we building good bridges, relationships, and processes? When Larson assesses his 30-year-old self in contrast to the progress of Stephen Sondheim at a similar age, he's neglecting the detail that Sondheim met his mentor, Oscar Hammerstein, at the age of 10. That's a key factor. Each path has its own start point. Okay, I'm digressing with my compulsion to dispense life advice, but this is a beautiful piece of work, and not just for 90s theater nerds. It is packed with fantastic music, memorable scenes, and cameos, hashtag no spoilers. Jonathan Larson is played by Andrew Garfield, and you can watch Tick, Tick, Boom on Netflix. I've started watching it. What blew me away was how talented Andrew Garfield is, because he played... In the movie, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, he played Jim Baker. Ooh. And I thought, wow, how's he going to pull this off? It's really good. He's a very skilled actor. Oh, yeah. So I can't wait to see the rest of it. I just, I'm old and I fall asleep before the thing. Okay. <laughs> and now, Fritz, before you introduce our guest, after you do your pick, come back to me because I'm going to talk about what I'm in the middle of watching. I can't wait to hear yeah, that. It will, maybe it'll be impetus for me to start something, too. Yeah. I want to talk about House of Gucci. This is at the Lamely Theater, but it's going to be streaming soon, apparently. You know, I'm not supposed to review, but this was a great movie. And, right. and if I'm recommending, I'm recommending, right? So I'm saying... I mean, go- we basically what you and I do, Fritz, is like without even like acknowledging that this is our process, we only talk about things that we're giving a good review. Yeah. Because we're right. recommending. Okay. So I, I didn't need to say that. This movie was adapted from the book House of Gucci by journalist Sarah Gay Forden. It's the shocking true story of the rise and fall of one of fashion's most famous dynasties, the Gucci's. Patrizia Reggiana was an outsider with humble beginnings who married into the Gucci family. Her obsessive ambition was greater than the ambition of the family member she married, Maurizio Gucci. Now, when Patrizia meets Maurizio, 
He didn't want anything to do with the family business, wanted nothing to do with leather. He had emancipated himself from all things Gucci. Then, as he and Patrizia got more serious and ultimately married, she infects his thinking like the Delta variant and goes back to work at Gucci, which leads to his demise and the demise of the company temporarily. All I'm going to say is Maurizio is assassinated. It's all in public record. Again, it's a true story, but if you're not going to read any of the raft of online stuff, I don't want to give away too much about the plot. He doesn't make it through the end of the movie. But I think her role as Patrizia Gucci is probably going to get Gaga an Oscar nomination, maybe a win. She is so good at playing a woman who is gorgeous and manipulative and not to be denied what she wants. Truly an all-star cast. Adam Driver is Maurizio. Excellent as well. Al Pacino plays Maurizio's uncle Aldo Gucci. Jeremy Irons as Rodolfo Gucci. Selma Hayek plays a psychic that Patrizia has befriended and is mysterious and wonderful as a co-conspirator. But the pivotal role is Paolo Gucci, the sad loser black sheep of the family, played unrecognizably by Jared Leto. If he doesn't get an Oscar, there's no justice on the planet. I'm telling you, th- he is so good, it's crazy. This movie is about toxic family tension along with betrayal and revenge and murder. Directed wow. by Ridley Scott. Really oh good my movie. Goodness. I wonder if Gaga walks away with an Oscar and a free purse. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> she looks good. She, but I mean, there are times in this movie where that switch flicks and she goes a little crazy and really brings it. She's she's quite talented. She reminds me of Barbara Streisand. You know, we all thought she was a singer. Then when the funny girl and all those came out, we said, oh my God, this woman's like three-dimensionally talented. Same but, with Cher. And Cher too. And uh, that's, what I, that, that's what I saw when I saw this really good movie. All right, that sounds unbelievable, but before what we are you in- delving into? Before we introduce our guests, I would like to hint at what I am working on. The real story of ABBA, Bright Lights, Dark Shadows by Carl Magnus Palm. Thus far, even more intriguing than the plot of Mamma Mia, although I have not yet encountered an ABBA member with three possible fathers. <laughs> I've, I've also begun watching The Beatles' Get Back from Peter Jackson, featuring tons and tons and tons of footage that would decorate any other cutting room floor, but it's The Beatles, and so Ringo ordering mashed potatoes and Yoko quietly sewing her fur coat are endlessly fascinating. <laughs> Fantastic. There's absolutely nothing on the cutting room floor. It's all in the movie. Wow. Yeah. And in preparation for next week's guest, Fritz, Cindy Williams wrote a book called Surely I Jest by Cindy Williams. And have you started reading No, it? I downloaded it, and that's the first step. I can't wait to talk to her. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had, um, we've had a couple of the people from Happy Days and, and, and people under the, uh, the Gary Marshall umbrella, mm-hmm. and every single one of those people just says that it was the pivotal time in their life getting, getting to work for him. So I'm looking forward to talking to her. Yes. All right, I'm, I'm so happy to have this man who's been a part of my life for many years, Barry Kiprick. He's a host and a producer of a much-awarded television and podcast content series. He hosted his own show on PBS stations all around the country for 25 years. It was called Between the Lines with Barry Kiprick. 
The show won three Emmy Awards. He interviewed the most famous authors in the world and turned the show into a multimedia enterprise and has brought it into the 21st century as a podcast by the same name between the lines with Barry Kibrick. He chatted with colorful global players like Queen Nora of Jordan and Robert Reich, the Secretary of Labor of the Clinton administration, Ron Howard, Anne Rice of Lestat vampire fame, Walter Mosley, Ray Bradbury, Elmore Leonard, and James Elroy, probably the the four-legged stool of American uh, letters right there. <laughs> it's really a who's who. Really does a good job. And I, But I think he would probably agree that his greatest accomplishment, which he could only consider as a gift to himself and his family, was to come to Channel 4 <laughs> in Los Angeles in 1984 and produce two, but actually three, when, when you add what a week. In your oh, lengthy right. bio, you left out what a week. I forgot what a week. Which is oh the precursor gosh. to John Oliver. I think we did just as good a job. Yes. Anyway, on the Fritz, it's Fritz, which followed Saturday Night Live, and What a Week, which was a week in review where we lampooned the news, which was, honest to God, the best two or three years of my career. Barry, yeah. nice to have you. Nice to have Yay. be here, guys. I've been watching and listening to you guys, and uh, I beg to come. So it's, uh, it's yeah, well, why I wanted to be here, no, and I'm well, so We grateful. love your podcast, too. Yeah. You really, um, we're going to get into it, but you drill down. I mean, your John Densmore interview was really interesting. I mean, you're talking to one of the iconic rock drummers about quantum physics. I thought, <laughs> wow. <laughs> we'll never do that on our podcast. Uh, anyway. well, you know, he brought it up, actually. No, no, it was great. You know, he heard my podcast with Nobel laureate Frank Wilczek. Yeah. And that's what made him yeah. want to talk no, about it. No, so. it was impressive. I'll just start him off with a question because I want to dig way back in his career because you had a really interesting well, start. But before you do, I want to say something because uh, you talked about Gucci. My wife, who is sitting across from us, she is was, when we met, the import supervisor for all of Gucci. No! Knows all of the people you talked about in that movie. And just for the record, I thought I'd share that with and our audience. And has a free purse. <laughs> no, we got, we did get a free piece of luggage when we got married. That was it. Wow. Oh, God, I wish I knew that. We would have included you in that in my in my review. Have you seen the movie? No. Well, no, no it's waiting. mandatory that you see it now. Oh, yeah, we plan to. Yeah, and I'm sure you're going to be able to pick it apart. The guy... I just don't know. You know, I know... I know the names, but I don't know all the dirt, and I don't know. What, I didn't. Wow, it, it's really a fascinating story. But there's a character in the movie, Tom Ford, who is the Tom Ford who came and saved Gucci once they went bankrupt, and you know he 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 picked it apart as a review. But you can't look at it that way because it's a movie, and you know it's Ridley Scott. It's not going to be reality completely. Anyway, wow. I'll be interested to see because you know they used to come from Italy and into yeah. Oh, they're, 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 it's like a it's like a masterclass in acting the whole movie. So let me just ask you one question about the Iditarod, and then we'll include Wheezy in the conversation. <laughs> you started your career in Anchorage, Alaska, Correct. as an anchor person and assistant news director. Right. And you covered the oddest yet one of the most popular sporting events on the planet, the Iditarod race, which is a 1,400-mile dog sled competition, and it was covered by the wide world of sports. Talk about that. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, we had a, I had a great news director named John Valentine who, just tell you the story about how I even got involved, it was one of those things, Fritz, where I was visiting my dad who, got tr who transferred up to Anchorage to work, and I met, I decided, what is, he asked me, what did I want to do? And I said, I want to be in television. He says, well, here you're in Alaska. Maybe this will happen here. And I said, surely it didn't happen in New York or New Jersey. So I went up to... Uh, Literally drove up the Seward Highway. There was 
a building. It said ABC on a big scaffold, KIMO-TV. Walked in, knocked on the door. I went on the air that night as the oh sportscaster. My. It's a good thing you and got I, there and when as you did. I say, this guy, John Valentine, I'll give they you this. They wouldn't have had a sportscaster. <laughs> they were, show up. This guy, they were John vamping Valentine, for hours. Let me just say, as I describe him, he makes Clint Eastwood look like Woody Allen. Wow. This That's was quite the handsomest macho <laughs> man on the planet. And in fact, when I all I did was talk to the receptionist to get the gig. And I said, you know, listen, I'm interested in uh, working. I'll sweep the floors. I'll mop the, I'll carry the cable, whatever it is. I'll, I'll do it all. It doesn't matter. And I hear from the back and he goes, asshole, get in here. <laughs> and I say to the woman, I said, you know, I would never let anyone talk like that to you if I were you. And he goes, she goes, he's not talking to me that way. <laughs> I go, well, I don't mind him talking to That's me that way. Great. Walked into the room. He said, what's your name? I said, Barry Kibrick. We had no sports. I said, well, you know, I played football. I was the president of my varsity club. Yeah, I know sports. He says, you want to go on the air tonight? I said, yeah. That's the way to do it, right? And he walked me into the room, went up to the person who was the sportscaster, said, you're fired. He's hired, went on the air. The main reason was he believed my New York accent would give a certain air of sophistication to the station because- Scare the crap out of the Eskimos. But... <laughs> well, no, I had my biggest fans were the Aleutians and the- yes, of, But that's, and, why, that's how you start. You, and, know, you and, don't have to sweat every mistake. You, you don't. And then, and then I went and it was his idea. He says, you know, no one ever covered this from start to finish. You want to do it? I said, sure. And literally, we covered the Iditarod race from start to finish. Wide world of sports. We were an ABC affiliate. They heard about this going from start to finish. And they sent up a team, and they caught the ending. And then what happened was, make a long story short, the ending they couldn't capture because they didn't realize that the lights went out at 11, and it turned 12 o'clock. They had all these major cranes up there getting ready to shoot the finish line. We had a broken harness. So we couldn't even, and they wouldn't give us a tripod. So I called, called my news director, and he said, don't worry, they'll get screwed. And I said, why? He says, wait till the lights go out. You'll be the only one on the ground. And sure enough, they ended up having to pay for us to get the footage. And my John Valentine said, oh, you're going to pay. We were able to buy three cameras with what he charged us because Whoa. they couldn't get the finish of the race. What a cool guy to got from. You got it. No, you're on a dog sled this whole time? No, I was in a hill. I had to fly in a helicopter. Okay. And to get, this was kind of strange, to get the shake out of the camera, they would roll me down <laughs> on the helicopter off out so I would dangle and I would shoot and they would roll me back up. And I would get back in, and I couldn't press the trigger with the gloves on, so I took it off. And I come back up into the helicopter, and I said, geez, how could you break your finger by just pressing the camera? He goes, my God, why'd you take your glove off? I said, I couldn't fit it in the little hole there. And he said, you got frostbite. And that's, uh, but we covered the race and, uh, and we sold All I ABC can say is footage. thank God you covered it before global warming. It's a lot more boring now as a race. <laughs> it's a shorter race. <laughs> they portage over a lot of grass. Wow, that, well, that's a story. Well, it just shows that you're that guy who just says, give me, give me a chance, I'm going for it. Open a door, you're plowing. That's exactly what we did with our TV show. And that's, that's exactly that's what we one, did do. That's one of the keys to success. Is you just look for opportunities, and then when you when you find them, you don't hesitate. You just go. Every gig I ever had, I never used a resume. 
Never once has anyone seen a resume of mine. It was always a knock on the door, put my foot in there and let them slam it and then insist that I get an opportunity. And that's how it, that's how it's been. So your TV show was on the air for 25 years on many markets. Yeah, we were actually, we were, we were in every market. Wow. But not on all the primary stations. So no. like on, in Los Angeles, rather than being on KCET, mm-hmm. we were on KLCS. So we were in a lot, in, in many of our markets, we were in what they would call their second tier PBS station. Some their first tier, uh, but in many we were also on their second tier. So, but we were in every market. Right. Who were a couple of the... Uh, of- your best interviews, people whose experience with you stuck with you. I will tell you that it's so, we did over a thousand conversations. And what I, I think, rather than say what was the best, because it's hard, I'll tell you though, the interesting people that I thought made an impression on me because they had an aura about them. One of them was Richie Havens. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Richie Havens, when you meet him, he has a presence about him. Uh, you talked about uh, John Densmore. I had him on mm-hmm. my show. He has a presence about him. One in particular, a fellow that you never would have heard of, was John O'Donoghue. He was a former Catholic theologian who, be, who left the church and became uh, a poet. And his poetry and his sense of spirit and soul was so powerful that when he was sitting in the green room, again, there was like something around that him. That it factor. Yeah. That it factor. Mm-hmm. And and in fact, when he died at a very young age and we were invited because he, he we really loved each other in a certain way. And he, he came and I was invited to his a little private home that was held in Mike Farrell's house. You know, Mike Farrell mm-hmm. from MASH. Yeah, right. And Steven Spielberg was there. There were a lot of people influenced by his words. And if I can recommend, there's a book called Between, in fact, it was after my show he came up with this title, I thought, but The Space Between Us. And it is a beautiful book of blessings that you give to other humans. Hmm. Not to, in service of God, but to other humans. So I would say that those... Two particular people, and as I said, John Densmore, there were, and there were a few others, but they had an aura about them. Obaba Ramdas, another gentleman that had oh, an aura, yeah, you know, be here now, and uh, he had also that little je ne sais quoi that makes you a little special. Who was a nightmare? I like pulling I, teeth. Oh, I, 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 I'm not going to mention the name. I just won't do it because I don't know if they're alive, but I'll tell you, you may get it, okay? Okay. It was someone who claimed to be a psychic, okay? Claimed to be a psychic, and uh, I didn't want her on the show because I didn't believe in any of of that, but yet she wrote a book that was very spiritual. Is it Shirley MacLaine? I'm not going to (laughs) say, but it wasn't, okay? It was not. That was a good guess. Good guess, but um, the – and I said to her, I said, listen, if you want to do this, just whatever you do, don't – do any psychic mumbo jumbo. Because <laughs> I know how to do that. I was a producer and we, we knew that there's a trick to do that. So she goes, oh, I promise, I promise. I said, okay, great. She sits down and before I ask a question, she goes, I see an R. Oh, and I said, oh, jeez, oh, you don't see no R. I'm telling you, I know how this is done. She goes, I see an M. Yes, now there's an M, of course. You know. <laughs> so that was the, the, the nightmare oh, one. Man. And then, 
a strange one, two of them actually, one was supposed to be with Pete Rose. And this I'll say because I'm not angry at Pete, but Pete, rather than coming, sends the co-author of the book after oh. I'm promised wow. that Pete's coming. And yeah, the guy small. sits down and he says, well, Pete sent you a videotape. I says, what do you mean, he said. And he <laughs> sends a videotape, a VHS tape, shot out of frame, all blurry, that says, hey, Bar, I'm glad I could be here with you today. Talk to so-and-so. And I said, nah, this ain't going to work, fellas. Wow. So that's that's why he's two, not in the Hall of Fame. You know. <laughs> Again, I don't. I, I because I I kind of hope he would get in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. So I I I don't want to be. I'm not. No, that be was little, a cheese ball thing to do, man. That was a cheese ball thing to do. But maybe he was taken over by this power of the author that he wrote the book with. I'm right. going to give him right. the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to be an anti Pete Rose guy. <laughs> well, Barry, I noticed on your YouTube channel that one of the most popular videos that you've got up there is called "The Art of Seduction." Oh, yeah. Robert Greene was just on the show last week again. Yes. So this guy has – I think people are just kind of seduced by that title. And describe what it is that he it, it, that, that, that he recommends or that he advises or what he thinks are impo- important human values that, and, that take the creepiness out of the word seduction. Well, first of all, he's most famous for a book called The 48 Laws of Power. Okay. And he was on the show just yesterday. Literally yesterday, we taped his new book called The Daily Laws, which is beautiful. You're seeing Robert Greene, I can tell there. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the way, one of the key things he wants everyone to know, and if you read the book, it's truly about seduction, not so much like how do I get in your pants when you're at the bar. This is a true strategic book on how to use the art of seduction. This is the... And the bottom line is how he says it's the ability to make the person you're with feel the wonder of being a child. Mm. So it's what he's doing in his when he studies seduction. He's not studying it as a way of romantic getting seduction. Someone. It could be getting a job or just trying to convince somebody exactly. to be your friend. And how to how to get how to get things ahead because when he wrote the laws of power most of that was a, a what we'll call of a macho kind of bent and he thought that women had as much power as men and even if it was using a seductive form and then he says it's not sexist because he gives you men that use the seductive power and like a Rudolph Valentino and things like that and um, but he it's seduction and it's not as I said it's about a way of getting power. That's his specialty, is he studies power and he studies it on all levels and he's brilliant and he's just wonderful. If you ever have an opportunity, yeah. All your episodes are great. You've got a wide range of personalities on there. Yeah, you had a really nice conversation with Ron and Clint Howard who have written a book together about their childhood. They were so gracious. I, I, Ron and I, I had Ron on my show years ago, and I had his wife, Cheryl. His wife, Cheryl, is a brilliant writer. And really, they have a, a wonderful relationship. And when we had Cheryl on, she saw my wife and my relationship, and it, it, we bonded. So I've been in touch with Ron all these years, and he's just, he's truly one of those guys that they say is the nicest guy in showbiz. 
and he really is. And if you knew his dad, and I knew his dad, because his dad would do the same thing I do, and same thing lots of old men in Toluca Lake do. They go sit at the counter at Patty's restaurant and look like they're homeless. And his father used to do that, and I would talk to him all the time. He was the nicest man. Talk and about could, seduction. That is yeah, hot. You know what? <laughs> uh, but you, you just, he was just a real human being, and he went out of his way to raise his sons as real people with their feet on the ground, just a Burbankian, you know? Yeah, and that's, and that's what the book's about. Yeah. It's really about his dad, Rance Howard, mm-hmm. and it's all about how he looked after the boys and how he, he really also, you know, you're amazed at when you really get to know it. He did things for them. I'll give you a quick example that's in, in the book. Um, he would pull Andy Griffith aside and say, I don't think... Ron should say it the way you're thinking he should do this. And he goes, who you talk? And he, but he wouldn't do it in that kind of a manner. He, was, he, had, a, he had a je ne sais quoi about him. He had a seductive it, talent. <laughs> yes, he did. And he, and, and he was able to change the way they viewed Ron in everything that he was in as a child. And it really helped Ron's career in, in many ways. And by the way, Virtually all of the money you hear about stuff like with Britney Spears and things like that, mm. virtually all of the money, except for them driving a 12-year-old beat-up car, went to the kids. The parents kept nothing, not even a small percentage, just enough to pay the bills. Father worked to get money, and they never took the money from He gave his boy. dad shots in his films and stuff, and it was cool. Yeah, and his yeah. brother, too. Clint now, plays in a yeah, lot of his Yeah, I films. see Clint. Clint, goes to Clint, Clint and I are Starbucks addicts, and I see him at the Pass Avenue Starbucks. Yeah, Burbank. he. they were both very charming. It was really a lot of fun. That's really, really. And then you had Marion on your show, right? We did. We've had. We're going. We're working our way through the cast. We um, <laughs> <laughs> we had Henry. Henry's a friend of Fritz and I from from way back. And then we had Anson, and then we had Marion. So. Uh, and now you say you're getting. Can I say Cindy? Is that... oh yeah. So Cindy Williams will be here next week. Spinoff. And, uh, <laughs> we'll have Scott Bayo, sure. We'll talk about <laughs> him. Why not? So. Well, before we start talking about the Fritz extravaganza, I want to ask you about one more thing, because you broke ground in a couple of other areas. You also developed the first interactive transactional TV show on the Sci-Fi Channel. What was that about? That was crazy. After I did the Studio 59, which we when we took over the Rick D show at ABC, I did, um, I have to admit, I, I will say, I behaved in a way that people thought was inappropriate. It wasn't. By that, I don't mean any sexual inappropriation or anything like that. But because I was working at ABC, I had to fire Rick Dees. Okay, I'm kind of like living vicariously through you because he fired me twice. (laughs) Okay, so and by doing that, I had to fire his agency, which was William Morris, and I had to fire his management firm, which was Gallen and Maury. Oh, my goodness. So you just lopped off the top of the Lopped off the top of it, and I couldn't get a job (laughs) if your life depended on it. You know, it was just, I was, there was, nobody would return a call, nobody would do anything. And then Phil Buth, who is, we both know, I called him up and he said, so you need a gig? I said, Phil, I need a gig. And he turned me on to this fellow, Earl Greenberg, who ran a company called Transactional Media. 
And he was a big player at NBC at one time. And they had, uh, he was an infomercial guru guy. Did all these things with Susan White, I forgot her name, with the short hair, and did a whole bunch of different things. Yes. Oh, and uh, wow, Dina. And did a whole bunch of things like that. And what the Sci-Fi Channel asked us to create an interactive selling show. So we would have, a, let me give you an oh. example. So we would have Scotty from Star Trek on the show, okay? And Scotty would bring a chair that he was selling. Right. Which had... Uh, his name on the back. Okay. And then we would talk with Scotty and we would sell his chair and we would do all these different things. So we'd have like, if you had um, Shatner on the show, we would sell his books. If you had this guy, we would sell all the different things that would come on the show. And I'll never forget a funny- The channel would take a piece and then he would give some- So it was like a hybrid talk show shopping network? Exactly. Okay. It was a hybrid talk show shopping network. And the funniest thing was we uh, had a buyer and uh, he, I mean, this comes right out of a joke book practically because it's, but he, he had, he was the buyer and he found out that in- Malaysia, something like that. They were actually created Star, Star Trek stamps. And we had, again, another Star Trekkie, and I forgot who it might have been, Officer Hulu. I don't remember who the heck it was. But we had somebody else on the show, and we were then selling. And these Star Trek stamps flew out of there like you could believe. Oh, yeah. But the problem was when he started to calculate, he put one extra zero at the end, like you know how you get confused with Italian money? Okay. Well, Malaysian money, I think, has like a billion dollars as 10 cents. Right. You know what it's I mean? Like it's like their currency of, is pennies. It's pennies, yeah. exactly. And so I'll never forget, every time we sold, we were losing money and we couldn't pull it off the air. Sci-Fi Channel didn't give a crap, you know? And, but we couldn't pull it off the air and his response was, don't worry, we'll make it up in volume. <laughs> and I said, it's just like billion stamps later. <laughs> so we, it's basically, you know, yeah, we. You guys are still printing them, stamps, right? Still... <laughs> wow! 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 All right, let's talk about our experience. You did three shows with me on the Fritz. What a week, which was a retrospective. But the one that I really liked, which I thought was cutting edge, was It's Fritz, which was an hour variety show that followed Saturday Night Live for a couple of years. I did a monologue. We had comedians and we had bands and we had sketches. And it was so much fun. It's the classic thing where you look back and understand how much fun you had when you're way too old to appreciate it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I look back, it was unbelievable. Talk about some of the people that we had on there, including Adam Sandler in his first television appearance. And not only first television appearance, but obviously Saturday Night Live saw him yeah. on our show. Yeah. And do you know that that character, remember? Yeah. Eats Fritz. I know. Fritz. That became his character in the water. It was film. so it was wow. so irritating. It was, it was so that's what I thought. It was so irritating. But he was <laughs> and I didn't even want him We'd on the show. We'd all sit around and Bob Levitan booked him and we <laughs> yes. said, you know, this guy, well, he, he's wasting our time here. <laughs> but he becomes In the this... meantime, three weeks later he's on Saturday Night Live. Yes, and he becomes this major you know who else we had on that you know, we didn't discover him, but who was Sam Kinnison, remember? Sam, well, so I'll, I'll, I'll tell you a story guy. about Sam. We had Sam, we had Jim Carrey, we had David Spade as comics. But Sam Kinison, another 
another interesting figure that people misunderstood. He scared oh, people because yeah. of his. He was you know, loud. He was loud. You know, I, when I first met him, he was the manager of the Westwood Comedy Store, and nobody got Sam Kennison. So at the end of the night, when he wanted to clear out the room, he would go up on stage and do a set, and the audience would run for the doors because <laughs> they were so freaked out. But he came to our show, and, you know, he was knee-deep in his cocaine addiction at that point. Hadn't been to sleep in like four days and smelled awful. And But he brought me a gift. And at the comedy store, I don't know if she still did this when you worked there, Wheezy, but Mitzi Shore, the owner of the comedy store, used to handwrite the lineup of the comics and thumbtack it to the door. And that was like the iconic thing, her handwriting with your name on it. So he brought me a list of performers from the comedy store. And on this rundown were Howie Mandel, Andrew Dice Clay, uh, Sam Kinison and Fritz Coleman. I said, okay, who is the lowest on the tax bracket on this whole thing now? <laughs> it's got to be Fritz Coleman. And I thought, and, and I framed it, and it's in my house now. But it was such a great gift. He had taken it and gave it to me. Let me tell you how great he really was, because all I knew, I met him that one time yeah. on your show. I had to do a. Sh I got the opportunity to do a show for Comedy Central, mm -hmm. and. Oh, I'm not going to talk into that because, again, that's another story oh, that will get me in trouble. But um, um, make a long story short, they they said, you got to get me somebody big. And I said, okay, we'll, I, I'll see if I can reach Sam Kinison. Sam Kinison, for no money, came down, did the show, left, and just thanked us for giving him the opportunity. Didn't charge us a dime. It was low budget. We were funding it ourselves. The pilot got picked up, but... Uh, Sam was just beautiful like that. He was such a beautiful soul. I'm still friends with his brother, Bill, who, uh, with his wife, owned a theater in Upland, a beautiful... They, they bought this old movie theater and refurbished it and made it a performance space. And I did all my shows out there. It's a really cool space. And you feel like you're talking to Sam because he looks like him. He's a little bit older. But they're both evangelical ministers. And that's where Sam learned his chops. All that stage presence and yelling and screaming was, he used to preach on Sundays that way, except plug in Bible verses instead of, you know. Curse words. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> exactly. So he was interesting. But but uh, we, we, we gave a lot of people their first pop on television. MC Hammer. MC Hammer. Wow. The Proclaimers. I'd walk 500 yeah, miles. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah and we had big bands. We had the Commodores. We had the Edgar Winter Band on there. But 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 what comedically, what we backed into, not realizing it was going to be successful, but it turned out to be successful, was we allowed stand-ups to come on and flesh out a sketch based on one of their successful stand-up pieces. And so the punchline worked. You knew the bit was going to work. We just fleshed it out, and we had some hysterical uh, John Mendoza in that funeral oh, sketch. I love John. Oh, oh. We've had we did some when you Ron were Richards Ron oh Ron Richards who run an Emmy the, for writing on Saturday Night Live that was the one that what wasn't he did the Robin the Robin Hood yes Men in Tights oh, Men in God. Tights with you and uh, we had so many of them that did great bits that we would then were Larry Miller remember yeah. as the doctor he had yes. and and we we took their bits and then we built. A sketch, around a sketch it. around it. Yeah. And it really was. And it was great because you knew it was going to work. They'd yeah. been doing these bits and clubs for years, but it just had many characters in it. Okay, so I have a question for the two of you. Where do those shows exist? Who owns them? And could we put them up on YouTube for everyone to enjoy? 
Uh, well, in Barry's uh, garage. No, I, I actually do have all the masters. But no, I gave them to Bob Levitan because yeah. he then made DVDs of it. But NBC owns them. So I didn't yeah. think unless you've got some yeah. pull with KNBC and you want to try it. There was a period of time. You remember when David Letterman went on E? They were doing reruns of David Letterman on E. And our general manager had some inquiries about putting our show on E. The problem was we didn't do enough episodes. We had to have like 65 episodes and we only had 25 or yeah. something. But we, so we didn't get to do it. So, it was, uh, you know, I, we, I have them. Okay. Or at least Bob Levitan has the masters, but I have the DVDs. So you, you know about rights. If, if, if it's our show and it's already broadcast, could we put them up on YouTube without NBC's position? I think we get them digitized. We put them up and we wait to be told to take them down. That's interesting. No one's going to take us to court. No one's going to spend money on now, that. Now, would we have to get permission from some of the stars who were on there to, to use no. their likeness or anything? Like no, no. Not for they, they already signed, it's, they already it's, signed we that. We won't be making money. It's just sharing yeah, that with the it's world. it's just for fun. Yeah. yeah. So there's all I, kinds I of stuff that goes up. Oh, man. People still talk to me about that. Oh. You know. And another success we backed into, Wheezy, was, you know, uh, the, the representation of new bands were looking for ways to get them exposure and give them television experience. So we had these record companies that would call, and I don't know who was booking the bands, Levitan or somebody was booking the bands, but we started to get these bands that were just on the verge of breaking, like Dramarama, Mary's, Mary's Danish, Stevie Salas, Color Code. These are all bands that went on to have national reputations, but they needed TV exposure for themselves, and we gave them their first pop. Well, let me, though, I have a little Dramarama story that goes right in with that. Okay. I was presented two bands, Dramarama by Bob and the crew, and another band, and they said, which one do you prefer? And I loved that Dramarama song, right? Last Cigarette, I think it was called. So we didn't have the Red Hot Chili Peppers, just so well, you know. Well, no, I remember that. We voted on that. <laughs> no, we, we, no, we voted on that. You asked me, my, or somebody asked, Bob asked me, Bob was our, one of our producers and bookers. He asked me his opinion. He said, I, I think Red Hot Chili Peppers, would be too big for the room. We did it on stage five at NBC, which was slightly bigger than yeah. this room. <laughs> and they would have blown the roof off the place. And I thought, I don't know. Are they too loud to be oh, in this studio? That's what I thought, too. Yeah. And, I said, I, and I like drama Rob. I know. I know. Well, that's a... <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only... I've, I've been bearing the guilt no, all not. this time that I'm the one that screwed us out of the Red great. Hot no, Chili Peppers. No, right. Now it's no. you. Good, if they were God. the Red Hot Chili Peppers of now, we would have, there would have been a, <laughs> no argument. All right. Let's talk for a moment. Barry, about how you continue to build more career pathways in a changing media landscape and how you advise for people to, to similarly um, move their careers forward. You know, it's I think if you do everything, no matter what it is, with enthusiasm mm -hmm. and passion and you don't stop, you can't fail. You know, it's it, you know, I, I don't make I still don't make money really on the show, but you know, you do it because you want to and you, you love to be creative. You love to and, – and, and I think this would hold true if you were an attorney, if you were an accountant. If you do your thing with enthusiasm, you can see pathways opening up. And in this case, I was resistant to do podcasting. I came on very late to the scene. It's only – I think I only have 12 original podcasts done. And um, but my son said, you know, Dad, you got to. You're and at the time, you know, thank again, I thank. But 
you know, COVID came in and the studio, I, we couldn't do anything anymore. So it was, you know, when one door closes, another always opens up. And if you keep your eyes open for that, you'll be okay. And so I really just recommend that if you love what you want to do and you you do it and you just put it out there and, you know, if it clicks, it clicks. And if it doesn't click, it doesn't click. You could always stop and try something else or you can still do it if you enjoy it. So that's how I do it. Fortunately, because of the rep I had from my show on PBS, I'm able to still get great guests all the time, which sometimes people can't really do. They can't get the, the kind of caliber guests that I happen to get on my show. But uh, outside of that, you know, again, that's because the door closed and I just opened up another one. So I think that's the key. Do everything you can, no matter what it is, with enthusiasm, keep your eyes open. And you know what? Also, and this is, I, I, I learned this from uh, John Densmore and Robert Greene, live your life with wonder. If you live your life with wonder and open yourself up to the miracles around you, you'll be able to pick one of them out and, you know. I, I, I give advice, which is sort of an adjunct to what you're saying, to uh, young interns at NBC when I was still employed. Um, and it, it's, 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 you know, pursue your passion with enthusiasm because that enthusiasm will become infectious, particularly for people who are watching you to see if they want to give you an opportunity. But also, I say the key to your success is not necessarily talent, it's it, but it's drive and it works well with others. I say if you are somebody that people enjoy working with, uh, because it's such a small business, later on in the next project, people will remember it being a pleasant experience having you on board and you'll get hired. So works well with others is at least 50% of the success of somebody in, this, in the entertainment business. You know, I heard a great line too, Louise, where you know the classic line is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I heard it flipped a little bit and it was, it's not what you, it's not it's not what you know, it's who knows what you know. And that's also, that's kind of an interesting thing. If people, when I, when I, when my company hit that roadblock after ABC, the station at KLCS TV saw my work in Chicago. They knew that I was working with no money and I made it look good. And that's when they said, can you do that for us? Mm. And I said, sure, I can do that because they knew what I could do, and that that's a, another big thing. And yet, and you, and you don't want to do it by publicizing yourself. You want to let the work mm-hmm. be what what stands out, not your publicity about the work. Well, we did that with our show. It's Fritz was thirty thousand dollars a week. So, am I right? That's the ballpark. I, I think, but not, but not above. You know. Part of not that was, a, not above the line. I was going to say yeah. it only cost them about ten thousand. No, because we were crossing over news crews exactly. and everything. We, we have to stop over. the comedy now because there's a helicopter exactly. chase. Exactly. Yeah. But it, so it wasn't really. It was a little lower. But <laughs> what I wanted to say was because I've I've sat back and watched this guy's career with astonishment, and that is Byron Allen actually blew us out of our gig because Byron Allen created this business model that has been enormously successful to him. Um, even though the shows he creates are just, you know, they're okay. But he came in with this business model, and my boss told me this story. He said, this is why I have to take your show off the air. Byron Allen comes in and says, I will give you my show for free. 
All I'm asking is that you would air three, four, 30-second spots in the middle of that hour, and the rest you can have. You can sell your own spots, and I won't charge you a dime for the show. So Byron Allen makes his money with Ford or whatever the advertiser, Paul Molliver or whoever the advertiser was. And that's the one that kills me. He said, I, I can't afford to pass up this opportunity. John Rohrbeck told me, and I thought, wow. And so now Byron's a billionaire and he owns movie companies and the Weather Channel and everything else. So apparently it worked out well for him. Yes, and I tried it and I made no money. <laughs> so it's, you know, again, it's just the way it is. I did that with Between the Lines. I said, listen, I'll give you the show for free and I'll get the sponsors. And that's how Premier Radio operates. Yeah, but I didn't get sponsors. So just <laughs> but, it's, but that's because you were on PBS, so there's a, there's a diminished audience. Yes. So it's it's really yeah. You had to go out and find underwriters. Underwriters and, and boy, they that was it's a nightmare. Right? Was for me it was, and you know I I never had a staff to really compliment. So what I did here's something I think if you talk about advice, Louisa, you mm -hmm. asked, it, and I said one thing I give advice is. I did something was I hired a lot of people on, on your show and that was I did forever that I liked, mm -hmm. that I wanted to work with and unfortunately were kind of like me. We had the same talents. What I should have hired was businessmen, yeah. accountants, you know, all sorts of different people who could surround me with the things that I didn't have, salesmen, things like that. That's where, if I can give somebody advice from what I didn't do, although I'm not complaining, I, my life still turned out wonderfully, mm -hmm. but it's just, you know, I didn't do that. So Byron created a business first yeah. and then right. a show. And then he we became irritating so people first. couldn't turn him down. Yes, right. and we, we, we concentrated more in our lives, by the way, in all of our lives. I know that you with your stand-up and you with your the work that I saw you do even with to teenagers, you give advice with Weezy. Well, no, 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 nothing ever made any money. After Premiere. Premiere was a miracle where I tumbled into people who were good at business. Right. I was the creative energy, but I just kind of collided with them at Kiss FM when I was writing for Rick Dees. That was a miracle. I wouldn't have figured that out on my own, but it's exactly what you're describing, where there were people who are strong where I am weak. And we were just a magical... Uh, and, and that perfectly describes the conundrum that Barry and I were in at Channel 4. Had we had somebody that knew the syndication business right. or knew how to take this thing to the next level who said, okay, we've only done 24, but if we could do another year's worth and sell 60 episodes mm -hmm. to E! Entertainment, right. then we have a national platform. But there was just nobody around that had that experience. Right. And I'm just a goofy weatherman. What do I know? And so I, I, I always sort of lamented that we didn't have a mentor to sort of guide us through that process. A yeah, I, I think that's... And I, I found that in, in almost everything I've done is I charge ahead and ask questions later. Yeah. But there's something fun about that too. That's why I'm saying I don't want to put that down because you know, it, it's, it, it's kind of an exciting way to live. I, I think Ray Bradbury told me this when he was on my show and you mm -hmm. talk about one of the pillars of, mm -hmm. of literature. And he said, you know, sometimes I just jump and then I build my parachute on the way down. <laughs> oh my goodness. And that's what that's I kind of find that I do. I jump and then I figure out how I'm gonna land. And it's supposed to be the other way around. And most financially successful people do it the other way around. But I don't know if happier people do it the other way around. That's interesting. Also, it could be that the innovators do it the way you're doing it. You, you're forced to innovate. 
when you need a parachute in midair. Exactly. And you're you're the one that's guiding the way for for other people, inspiring other people that maybe you know, will kind of align themselves early in life with a, you know, like a Steve Wozniak and a Steve Jobs kind of a combo where there's someone that's just like gifted at business and someone who's just a, a genius and they and they mash up and history is made. But I want to talk to you for for a moment about your interviewing technique because I, I, I did find it very engaging that you immediately get to the heart of what matters to the people that you're talking to. And then I read an article that said, you don't actually ask any questions. You just make statements. <laughs> Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I, um, I, I don't ask you, I won't be asking you guys questions. You're gonna be on the show in, in a couple of days. Uh, unless, by the way, I, I don't, I don't, it's not that I don't ask questions. If a question comes up endemically within the conversation, sure. But for the most part, it's, it's the opposite of what Larry King did. Larry King always believed that he wanted to be like his audience and never read the book and just make believe he didn't know anything. And I thought that seemed like I would be cheating. If I'm having that guest on, I should know what it is. And then what I do is, I, it's, it's ego. I take the things that are interesting to me mm -hmm. and I tell them hey, this is what you wrote, but I find this very interesting. And therefore, it automatically gets right into the thing. You know, it's never all those other types of questions that really the publicists basically give you the the sheet and you can just read the talking points. I've never had one of those. I well, never see, used those. Well, see, you're already a winner because first of all, and we experienced this on our show, Wheezy is meticulous about reading every book. I try to, but I... I, I can't get through them all. But first of all, the guest is more comfortable when they understand that you took the interest to read the book. They love that. And so the Larry King thing may be on a subconscious level. Well, you know, I'm the audience and I, I just want to be inquisitive about it. But when the guest finds out that you, you took time to learn the material, they love that. And well, it's an easier interview. And in fact, Larry King asked to come on my show. Wow. And I said to him, literally, I said, why would you even want to come on my little PBS show? Because you're Larry King. You just you're on CNN, and he is, I'm not going to try to imitate Larry King. But it was because Nancy Reagan said you got to go on this guy's show, oh, and he go. said why? He says because he'll be the only one that'll get you and read the book. <laughs> so it was you know, and that's yeah. that's you know that's that exactly. that was it. And uh, and and as I said, it's not just reading the book. But it's how you put, how I put my spin on the material. Mm -hmm. And that's what I do. So therefore, even if you don't have a book, like neither of you guys are going to have a book, but I'm going to put How do you my, know I'm not going to have a book? I, I have well, a book. You, well, you better give it to me because uh, <laughs> you're coming on in two days. By the way. Oh, you mean, uh, oh, I've, oh I, I see what you're saying. You see, so, um, but I, I, I will find out things that interest me about you. Right. And like, for instance, listening to all of your podcasts for the last Gosh knows how long I've been. I think been. you're ready. I'm ready. But um, so th that's how uh, I do it. And, and that's uh, the enjoyment I get out of it. it. Uh, we have found that uh, if you show an interest in the material, it really puts the guest at ease and they, they love it. Yeah, well, that's what you guys do so beautiful here. And it's, that's why we're doing this together even because we, we, we share a certain sensibility. Sometimes when I, when I listen to you, I, I go, you know, that's how I would approach things so again i wish you were a business person so you could get us all money louise <laughs> come on wheezy <laughs> fritz we're already I, ruling I, you I'm out clueless. <laughs> I, good. I, I should. 
Well, maybe yes. maybe there's a business person listening. You know, maybe so. <laughs> yes, we could all use. We can help. make you a lot of money. Before we uh, leave the topic of my show, because yeah. it is all about. I don't me. think we're ever leaving that. <laughs> okay. Um, I, there's just a couple of things that I'm proud of, and I and there aren't that many people I can commiserate with and be uh, communally proud with. And you're the producer of the show, but was our amazing band. We had a house band that was like an all-star band. Tell tell them about that. We had well, it was first of all formed by Lawrence Juber, who was the lead guitar player for Paul McCartney and Wings, and um, he formed the band. He had on. By the way, all of these people live right in this neighborhood. We had on uh, Bruce Gary, who was the drummer for The Knack and the classic sound of My Sharona. He was our drummer. And then we had the bassman, Phil Chen, who was the Rod Stewart's bassman for Do You Think I'm Sexy. And now does the New Doors tour. He, 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 him and John Densmore. We yeah. In fact, if you listen to the whole thing, yeah. we talk about yeah. Phil yeah. At the, in, the, yeah. in the podcast even. Just this great guy. And then... Lawrence, God bless him, and he does. He is literally one of the legends of guitar. Yeah, people he's know Eric He's a twelve-string guitar virtuoso. He's it, had like thirty albums. Oh yeah, but he is truly a master. Mm -hmm. And and his wife Hope also very creative. And in fact, his daughter is yeah, up she's for a producer now. Uh, for an Emmy. Yeah, she's up for uh, not an Emmy, a, a Grammy, a Grammy. Yeah. His, they're a big, and, and his wife. Uh, Hope Juber is the daughter of uh, Sherwood Schwartz. Sherwood Schwartz, who did the you Brady know, Bunch. yeah, the Brady Gilligan, Bunch and Gilligan's, Gilligan's Island. Island, and very yeah, talented, really family. talented family. And now their daughter is a Grammy winning. And by the way, you know, if you Lawrence makes me sick for one reason, mm -hmm. he's so damn handsome. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. No, he looks a little bit like a Paul McCartney, even, yeah. but handsomer. Yeah. I know that sounds funny. And as he gets grayer, he looks handsomer and but handsomer. He, but he's so <laughs> dialed into the music industry. We had all these great guest players. You well, know, John Mayhall played his John Mayhall oh, played. Booker T. Booker T played. Booker T. Jones, I have a picture Robbie of Robbie Krieger of the Robbie Doors. Robbie Krieger. Um, and, and then, I can't remember the guy's name, but he was the keyboardist for Bonnie Raitt. What was his name? That would he sat in with us maybe every other show. I can't remember his name. That's it. Do you remember? I don't know if he was the traveling keyboardist, but I'll think of it before we're done here. Okay, but I'm yeah, well, we had some, we had uh, we had some great sit-in musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, Mike Finnegan. No, I don't think so. Think, that doesn't sound familiar. No. But we, but we did have some. Uh, there were who were some of the others? There were a few more that we catfish. Who I know who we had that was so great. The saxophonist for Pink Floyd. Oh, yeah. Remember? And yeah. he did Harlem Nocturnal. Right. With this bass saxophone. Oh, my God. And then we had uh, Herman's Hermit, who, who's, yeah. who did a bit with us. They, they, yeah, he, Peter Noon. Yeah, he was great. Yeah, I love him. And yeah. my co-host was Max Alexander, God rest oh, his soul. Max. Yeah. And Max came up with one of the best bits that probably could have ended up on Saturday Night Live. He played a Scottish weatherman. Oh, God. Where he wore, <laughs> oh. where he wore you know, he weighed like 400 pounds, and he wore a kilt, and he talked about haggis. Yeah, and, well, Every and he, forecast included haggis. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll, can I tell a funny story that Please. we did? Well, one of the things was at NBC, the censor that we had to show all the material to was blind. Okay. Yeah. Bill, Bill something. Yeah. He was a blind censor. Mm -hmm. So nothing with words we could ever get around him. But images, 
we could. And one of the, and he, he didn't see it, but one of the bits that Fritz would do was he would show, we, he would show the materials that were out that he thought was interesting, little tchotchkes or something like this. Mm -hmm. And we had, I'll never forget this, we had a Magic Johnson coffee mug, okay, that had a, Last a lariat that you could wear around you and carry it along. And Fritz's line was, he, if he doesn't remember, he goes, and he points down, he goes, who wouldn't want a Magic Johnson? <laughs> and, and the place goes up laughing. And before we were a little delay, and, and, and Bill, the guy says, what is so funny about that? <laughs> and I said, beats me. They must love Michael J Mika, uh, Magic Johnson because he didn't see what Fritz was doing. But, uh, but about censors, one night by accident, <laughs> you know, we, we posted the show like you do with yours. And we, we uh, uh, somehow the raw tape, the unedited tape made it on to broadcast. Ooh. Do you remember that night? No. Oh, of course you do. And and Aaron called me at like one o'clock in the morning. He said, "This is the wrong tape." This, oh, oh yes, and, yes. And there was yes. profanity, and there was it was awful. And don't you remember that? <laughs> oh, I, 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 you know, I remember the panic. That's all I remember. <laughs> oh my God! Wow. But anyway, well, we're gonna have to thank you for allowing me those memories. Not that that's your entire life, but it was almost mine. So, no, it's, come on. It was a a beautiful. It was really. We had a camaraderie on that show that um, that was really just beautiful, as I said, because we hired people that I liked. Yeah. But you know, there's a benefit. We had great that. writers on the show. Yeah. Randy Fector and Randy was great. Yeah. But did Fritz ever like really piss you off? Never. Fritz could never piss anybody. Give me, give me off. one Lying good story. Sick. I can't. Or he not... comes in drunk and just railing no. at all the interns. No. I could tell you when I produced, took over ABC. I could tell you some. Richard oh. Belzer. Oh yeah. The bells. I love the bells, but he threw two things at my head. He threw a <laughs> and, TV and missed. And oh. missed. He threw a TV at my head wow. and the remote control at my head. I had a dodge and duck, you know. But I love him still. He was still. A, he was a great guy and a great talent, you know. Yeah. But no, Fritz. I don't recall, Fritz, I don't, I don't remember you raising your temper. No. I was uh, anesthetized at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, uh, he was just, he's just a, he's, you know, we talk about Ron Howard. Yeah. As far as local men go, <laughs> nationally, Fritz would be one of the nicest men. A gentleman. A yeah. true gentleman, a mensch, and just a, a good man. I would be, I would be the nicest in a very specific geographic area. <laughs> But Max Alexander, and I'm not saying this is a criticism because this is a this is a disease. But Max was narcoleptic, oh. and we used to have writers' meetings, and Max would nod out during the writers' meetings. Oh. And at first, we thought it was boredom, and then we realized it was narcolepsy. He would just he would just go to sleep. Oh, I'm telling you, we had a narcoleptic cameraman at KLCS TV. Oh my God! And it was my camera that he was on. <laughs> so I'm not saying who. But he was narcoleptic. And I'll never forget, because I, as the producer and the host, you have to watch the monitor and you have to watch the guest. You have to do everything, you know? And all of a sudden, I see the camera just going up, up, <laughs> up, and him going down, down, <laughs> down. And uh, so, yeah, that, and oh, yeah, I do remember Max. That was. He but you know what was funny? But man. he'd wake he up was... and he'd be right in the middle of it. He'd like he'd know we, yeah, we no. were. He didn't miss and a beat. I, honestly, I'm not criticizing. He was so funny and so naturally funny. And he was Jerry Lewis's famous fa favorite 
stand-up comedian. I just want to give Max credit for this line because it's been lifted by both large people and skinny people. Max's opening line as he gets on stage, he moves the mic stand and he said, I just want to make sure you could see me. (laughs) I've seen large people do it. I've seen skinny people do it. It gets a laugh. It's Max's and you've stolen it. Yeah. Thank you. I remember Max. That's when he auditioned for the show. That was how he opened up the the audition. He was one of those guys. And the person who I think does this the most brilliantly is Stephen Wright. But Max was funny with the fewest possible words. Mm -hmm. Economy. It's so funny and just kill you. And that sort of a deadpan hang dog look. Anyway, those are all my memories. Thank you for letting me relive a few of them. Oh, come on. All right, Barry. I'm invited any time for Before that. we talk about or beg people to review our show, uh, where can <laughs> people find and review your show? They can uh, – uh, We're it's between the lines with Barry Kibrick. In fact, all you have to do is put my name in any podcast uh, provider and you'll find it. It's on iTunes. It's on Spotify. It's on Google. It's on every app. Or you can actually just go to my website, barrykibrick.com, and see all the – episodes there they're, and they're all, all on youtube too. and they're also all on youtube so uh yeah they can find them anyway it's just easier to use my name because i stole between the lines i mean that's been a name that was just a saying and then yeah. i stuck my name on it and then if you google my name by the way everyone says you know you have to have that or well there is no other barry kibrick so it's beautiful just google barry kibrick and you'll find all my podcasts and um and, uh, well, you do a good job. You're, you're a great interviewer. Yes, you really Thank you. are. Really Thank are. you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Go ahead, Fritz. Well, if you enjoyed this episode of Media Path, it would help us to be more discoverable by potential new listeners. If you leave us a quick review on Apple Podcasts, and if you're new here and this is your first time with us, please check out our back catalog. Most of it has been proclaimed binge-worthy by people who know. We did a whole show about Motown. And just a couple of weeks ago, did a show with Mark Miller, whose father was the first white songwriter on the staff at Motown. We did a show about Mark Felt, who was identified just before he died as the famous Deep Throat of Watergate for him. It was a great show. We did a show, a very revealing hour with Michael Reagan, the son of Ronald Reagan. He was so honest and really uh, forthcoming with some very personal stuff. We had a great chat with Wheezy's close friend and maybe one of the greatest songwriters in history, Diane Warren. They're all there. So please... Check those out, and I know you'll find something that will make you happy. Can I give a plug, too, real quick? Please. For you. When I listen to your guys' podcast, the chemistry that you have brings out the best in every single guest you have, and that's what makes it so special. It's not the guests. It's the chemistry that you two have and how you relate to your guests. I've been enjoying it so much. It's been just a thrill. Thank that's, you, guys. That's a nice compliment coming from you. Appreciate really that. Really nice compliment. Thank you so much, Barry. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. We would love to know what media you have been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media or email us at MediapathPodcast at gmail.com. We want to thank our wonderful guest, Barry Kibrick. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palanker, here with Fritz Coleman and Barry Kibrick, and we will see you along the media path.